basically laid at laying down single malt that coming off the stills is is not that's not super original we're just doing single malt the way it used to be done in a different era in a different place and trying to kind of preserve that thing that was lost just to efficiencies and commodity markets and uh yeah and then we're throwing an american heavy-handed virgin oak which probably doesn't really make that much sense except it works Welcome back to Single Malt Matters, the American Single Malt Whiskey Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Drew, and this week I've got the rest of my conversation with Jared Hempstead from Balcones Distilling in Waco, Texas. When we left off with Jared, we were just getting the ball rolling on his decision to get into American Single Malt back in the not-too-distant past when it wasn't really much of a thing. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's, you, you look back 10, 12 years, and single malt back then it was A, a leap of faith. And to your point, if you're trying to follow the industry, you're not going to do it because there is no single malt industry at the time. Uh, and I think uh, arguably a lot of people would look back and, and they would list what you're doing and what you've been doing as one of the formative uh, distilleries in the space. And for me as a consumer, it's really cool because it's unique. It follows the the category. I, I hate to use the word trailblazer because it sounds so cliche, but I like different distilleries that have their own take on it that is very well executed as an example of looking at the category from stylistic perspectives there can be a lot of differentiation. There's a lot of different space for different expressions, different flavors. And, you know, you look at bourbon and this is one of the things that kind of comes up from time to time to a large extent. When you think of bourbon or someone pours you a bourbon, you got a pretty good idea what you're going to get in that glass and what it's going to taste like. You know, it's just, just that, that corn forward flavor profile that is just associated with bourbon. When it comes to single malt, Man, there's so much room for diversity and different flavor expressions that that's, that to me as a consumer is one of the things I'm most excited about. Um, that said, what we've been talking about having a lot of influence from a flavor perspective on single malt from the barrel, given the fact that in order to be malt whiskey, right now it has to be aged in, um, in virgin oak. So that said... If and when, and I'm gonna, I'm, I'm leaning more towards the when on this. I hope you're right. Um, when the new standard of identity gets passed for American single malt whiskey, how is that going to impact what you're doing from a maturation perspective? Um, I don't think it's going to change anything we're doing. You know, we we've said this before, even at some of our uh, commission events. The uh, the shorthand is nope. The government actually doesn't tell you what you can and can't make. They tell you what you can and can't call it. Yeah. You know? Yep. Um, so one of the cool things that just went through recently with some of these TTB revisions is they decided to finally allow if you want to use whiskey, which is very generic, instead of the most specific standard of identity it used the, the rule used to be if there was a more specific standard of identity you have to use it but i don't know anybody in the world that wants to go into a liquor store and buy a bottle that says made from a you know whiskey made from a bourbon mash like what what is that 
whiskey made from a malt mash if it's used <laughs> barrels. Like, um, so you've like you've heard from a lot of the other single malt producers, we've been using whiskey as the generic catch-all to not limit people's choices on what they can and can't put it in. Um, so, for example, the we chose to go ahead and use the straight malt whiskey with the Shiner release because it was all new oak and perhaps some other reasons. But um, there's not a whole lot that I think it's going to change for us. I fought pretty hard to get the... Um, yeah, one of the other things that went through, hopefully they're not done. Hopefully our standard of identity that we proposed is going to be in the next round of revisions. But one of the other things that did come through on this last round was, you know, for, for, for whiskeys that don't require new oak, that your finishing age can count towards the age statement. Um, in the past, that hasn't been true. So... Uh, yeah, we've done stuff where you, it spent more time in sherry than it spent in the original barrel, you know. Um, and so you end up putting this really sh- sounding like a very short age statement on something that's actually, you know, like four years old, but you end up putting 18 months on it or something. Um, so that got fixed. And I think probably more than any other American whiskey styles, malt distillers are probably going to be playing around with finishing uh, or full maturation and sherry madeira port whatever more than most others so that's a pretty that's a pretty big uh leg up for everybody now that stuff that was um getting a big chunk of its age cut off you know at the knees because it was a finish or a secondary barreling now now that's not going to be a problem but so let's talk about uh your next release i saw the label come through for approval on ttb uh lineage what is lineage all about so yeah Everybody does a little bit of this. There's a lot of revisions allowable, so that label probably will look like almost probably like nothing like what's going to actually come out. But we get the label approval process started, <laughs> knowing you can change color and graphics and even proof and even back. And you can do almost anything after you get it approved, um, other than change the expression name or the class type. But so we usually get labels thrown in just so they're approved, so we don't have to be hung up on that later. We don't have a lot of core malt other than the the first one the one the black label um we've done some french oak only releases we did some texas grown barley release we did that once we've laid it down a bunch but we've only sold that once by itself um so lineage is as the one migrated and has slowly evolved to be new oak um and mirador which is our all refill uh it's kind of always been behind the scenes something we used for blending purposes with the one and we slowly were using less and less of it and then we had almost a year of blends where we we're like man we're not using any of those used barrels so now we're putting that out and that's kind of our nod to space side um much more understated gentler fruitier um the lineage is going to be kind of our our final step into what we were already doing with the one which is kind of having a foot in both in both traditions so lineage is going to be always new oak and used oak combined and it's also going to be texas grown barley with the golden promise you know scottish barley that we've used historically so it's going to be grain from both places and then kind of maturation approaches the one that's traditional to american whiskey and the other that's traditional to tradition you know single malt uk single malt um so yeah, we've we kind of played around with it one time. We had all this single malt out, new barrels, used barrels. We got 
Golden Promise, which we usually use. We had had some of the test trials of the varieties of Texas barley and different maltsters we'd been messing with. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Gabe's one of my blending partners. I don't know if he, he threw it together, but next thing we knew, we are kind of like hodgepodge all of it. And it was like, man, this is really promising. Um, the other big differentiator for, for – we've been struggling really hard the last few years to um, – to do what I think everybody expects businesses to do as they grow is to see economies of scale kick in, prices start getting a little bit more affordable, even if it's just kind of subtle incremental drops. Um, so we 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 came out with the first time we'd had a core lineup bourbon that wasn't a huge big cast strength, you know, bomb of a whiskey uh, about a year and a half ago, I guess. Um, I. I was really struggling with family and friends and neighbors that weren't that wouldn't buy our stuff. Uh, you know, if you're a whiskey guy, you don't you know sixty, eighty bucks for a bottle of whiskey is not like. Uh, but you know, f- for a lot of people, even forty dollars is expensive. Like they don't spend money like that on a bottle of whiskey often. Um, and I'm sure there's brands that set out to be um, fancy and expensive only and on purpose. But we never. I mean, we did never have a goal to end up there and it really is kind of a heartbreaker when uh, you know people aren't buying it just because of price uh, and sometimes proof kept coming up too you know we tend to do stuff 50 53 and up ABV and that's not people who don't drink all the time or people that are used to anyway 40 43 percent chill filtered stuff that's that's a little bit of a, you're asking a lot so we set out to do the pot still bourbon which is uh, yeah, it's our attempt to kind of just meet people where they're at, you know. So the price is lower, the ABV's more approachable. We did a straight bourbon category that's familiar, like we'll, you know, just trying to. So the same, the lineage is kind of going to be filling that same spot. If if the pot still bourbon was our attempt to meet people where they're at, this is going to be our attempt to kind of, you know, hook them in. It's, we're going to try and make it as affordable as we can. We're going to lower the proof. You know, our, our regular release is 53. We're going to be down around 50, 47. Um, even the profile, we're going to try and make something that's that's gentle, it's tasteful, If once, like just like our Pilsner conversation earlier. If you want to pay attention to it and break mm-hmm. it down, you can, but you really don't have to. Don't feel like you should. Mm-hmm. When you open it and pour it, everything about this should be like sending you the message that you're – have a good time. Enjoy the conversation you're having. You know, or follow this up. Follow a meal up with this. Put some music on, or drink it while you're watching this, the game. Assuming games coming back to the, to the world. <laughs> Whatever it is you're doing, this can be a part of it. It can be a, an accompaniment to it, but it doesn't have to take center stage because it's not going to punch you in the face. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a really unfortunate thing, and I, I've talked to a lot of other distillers that the. Uh, yeah, just the scale to know what we can't can and can't compete with, and to know that this is not within mm-hmm. grasp of there's a lot of just regular folks that that that's they don't have a they don't have a five hundred dollar a month whiskey budget, you know, um, which yeah. is which is unfortunate. So yeah, we you know we take a little bit of a hit profit wise, like per bottle, but um, we just we just the last spent the last few years trying to figure out how to how to get out of a space that's 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 just for kind of these people that have bunkers full of whiskey and are always chasing the new thing and that are in whiskey groups online and all that stuff. There's a whole world of people out there that, that love a good drink. Um, they're just never going to shell out that kind of money. So, yeah. Yeah. So you started, um, uh, talking a little bit about, about grain 
and Texas grain and, and malt. I want to dive into that a little bit more. And one of the big messages here um, that, that I'm consistently trying to convey through the podcast is that the grain is important. The grain matters. And uh, it's more than just a commodity thing. And going back to regional variations in grain, I'm really interested in what your experience is with malt in Texas. Why do you use it? What's different about it? And who are you, who are you getting your malt from? And uh, what, what do those relationships look like? Yeah. Um, so unlike Westland's story, which is super rad, but we are not in a barley growing part of the country. There's uh, the rye we use, Elbin rye. There's ground cover rye that gets plowed under everywhere. That's an easy thing to talk to a Texas farmer about getting some of their rye. They're happy to sell it because they were probably just going to use it for ground cover and uh, plow it under with the next crop. Corn's everywhere, obviously. Um, Got a decent amount of milo, like grain, not stock sorghum, but grain sorghum, things like that. But barley was... uh, you know, it was all coming from Colorado or Canada. Even for kind of craft malting to be taking off, they weren't getting they weren't getting grain here. They were getting grain from other places and malting it here. Um, so yeah, Brandon Aid at, at Blacklands Malt, Pflugerville area, North of Austin, mm-hmm. uh, was the first person we talked to. He had been working with A and M Ag School here in Texas for a long time, um, trying to find some drought and heat resistant strains that would do well. Um, and the the funny thing was that uh, they started getting stuff in the ground, and then we had two summers in a row that were wet and cool late, and everything everything went bad like in the field, <laughs> and none of it was none of it was like beverage malt quality grain by mm-hmm. the time it was harvested. Um, so it was a painful. We knew it was going. It's like man, harvest is coming up. This is going to be awesome, and it's just all mildewy and gross. Uh, and then two summers in a row of that. So by the time we finally got a viable, you know, malt grade crop, or he did, I should say, uh, a tiny little bit of it went to a few breweries who, you know, did kind of some one-off releases with you know Texas-grown barley. Um, there was one portion of the crop that the diastatic power was pretty crappy. And so he was trying to figure out what to do with it. And we were like, yeah, for us, that's not a big deal. I can see for a brewer that that's like a deal breaker, but I can use exogenous enzymes. We can figure this out. Um, and so we pretty much bought the whole rest of, I mean, a large majority of that year's yield. So the very first year that there was Texas grown barley of malting grade available, uh, a few Austin breweries did some beer and then we picked up the rest and laid it all down. Um, and since then, it's just been an endless, I mean, the amount of farmers that have gotten involved, the amount of varieties that have been laid down and people are starting to figure out which ones are working and which ones aren't. Um, even the craft malting is blowing up just as much as craft beer and craft whiskey have been for the last decade. Um, so we have we have other, now we have uh, Tex Malt, which is also another small uh Maltster up near the Dallas area. So between those two guys, it's actually really fun. We've got drum malted stuff, floor malted. So that's a variable on the spreadsheet. We've got two suppliers. That's another variable on the spreadsheet. And then the farmers 
mm-hmm. they've worked with is another variable on the spreadsheet. And then we had you know the different strains and varieties that, that have been experimented with. So it's kind of the sprawling. I don't know what we do. I don't know what we do when that stuff's already. Yeah. If it gets released, <laughs> if we turn put it, turn it all into one thing, or if we release it in these little kits, so you can try. We'll figure that out. It's another one of those things where the way we approach it, that seemed like the obvious next step. And then at some point you go, wait a second, what are we going to do with this stuff? Um, so I don't know. I don't really even know what the goal is, but when you, when malt is your drive, it's your, you know, your, your reason for being and your, your main interest. And someone goes, Hey, we're really close to being able to go grow barley out in the panhandle. Do you want some? I mean, the answer is obviously yes. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, well, especially when you consider that that uh, for the longest time, you know, even even to this day, if you ask guys over in Scotland, they'll tell you that flavor malt doesn't have anything to do with flavor. It's all about extract. Uh, and so the whole idea of malt and flavor in whiskey is a relatively new and, and recent development and kind of a paradigm shift uh, in in the distilling world. And so given that you know, we're kind of in a position to be able to play around with, with the malt and, and start doing that exploration. And man, you're in a great place to do it too, because barley's pretty new there too. Yeah. I mean, brand new, right. No one has any idea what's, where this is going to go and what's going to thrive, what all can be done with it. Um, it's kind of another, another one of those really fun things that there's so many ways to approach the sense of place, that whole idea and like letting where you are matter letting it be a, a component and a partner in the whiskey making and maturation process, which I don't know why you wouldn't. I don't know why you would try to fight the place you are and what it wants to do. But um, yeah, it's yeah. come up more than once where I'm sitting on a panel and they're going down and like local grain and local grain and they get to me and I'm like, ours is from Scotland. <laughs> and people, <gasps> you know, um, <laughs> that's not what a craft distiller is supposed to answer. You're supposed to say you grew it in your backyard or something. Right. But even that, it, in a way, it's not dissimilar to discovering, hey, we live really close to this historical barley growing region. And there's this crazy story about camels and like purple barley. All that, all that stuff is nuts. <laughs> but the, the idea that very tasty varieties that used to be standards have gone by the wayside for efficiency is to me is still a story worth telling and a, a tradition worth salvaging. And so we've been using Golden Promise. And anybody who's got a bunch of Dusties and is really into like certain, you know, late 60s through the 70s, early 80s, mid 80s scotch, like that's what it was. Yeah. And if you've been wondering why it's different today and why your favorite brand was so good back then and how the new stuff's fine, but it's not really the same, uh, that's a factor, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's really... The more I think about it, we just did a bunch of stuff that made sense at the time. But to to be throwing, you know, basically laid at, laying down single malt that coming off the stills is is not it's not super original. We're just doing single malt the way it used to be done in a different era in a different place, and trying to kind of preserve that thing that was lost just to efficiencies and commodity markets and uh yeah and then we're throwing an american heavy-handed virgin oak which probably doesn't really make that much sense except it works but uh (laughs) 
So I want to switch gears a little bit. I know um, that you were part of a, a kind of, I guess I'd call it a collaboration project with uh, Lost Lantern. So Lost Lantern is a new, they're basically what, like a blender. You know, I'm going to actually um, have been talking with with Adam, uh, one of the founders of Lost Lantern. We're going to be talking with him a little bit later on the podcast. Um, but that's, I think, a really exciting opportunity for another exploration into American single malt. Um, talk a little bit about about that project, your role in it. And I the, the follow up question to that is, are we going to see a Balconis? Westland collaboration at any point? Oh, I mean, those guys, man. I, I mean, they, they they do a really good job when they're on you know on microphone or on camera. But man, they're hard to work with. They're just difficult, difficult guys. <laughs> so, I mean, it's possible. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't put it up as super likely because they're, they're just hard to be around. I'm just kidding. Um, I think I think everyone's been so busy for so long. I, when things like that come up, it's like, oh man, that is like one of the most obvious things in the world. And we've just, you know, everyone's just barely t- finding time to breathe. Actually, right now with everything that's going on, this is one of the best times to maybe like have to be able to sit back and go be proactive about, man, why, ha- why haven't we done something like that? I've always wanted, because I love the kind of independent bottler tradition, especially with scotch, um, the thought of getting to work as a blender to get to work with someone else's liquid is fascinating because you're familiar with your stuff. You're used to those dynamics. You kind of know what to expect and also what the goal is. The idea of going into somebody else's maturation stock and just getting to play and seeing, seeing how it behaves and uh, just kind of the metal, the nuances and subtleties of how their liquid behaves in the blending process, which is, that's exciting. We've talked about doing some of that here in Texas, even, you know, to have a Balcones release that the iron root guys, that, you know, like you come in, grab, grab the barrels. I mean, obviously I'm going to check it cause I have to, if it's going to go out with our name on it, I got to make sure, sure it's solid, but, or I'll pick barrels. That I know like these are all great barrels. You'll make something good with it. But I think stuff like that's really, really fun. Um, that was the second question. What was the, the first question was the yeah. lost lantern. Yeah. The first one was about lost lantern. Yeah. Because I know like you guys, you, you are going to be in the same bottle. Uh, so the expression is their, their American vatted malt. And so you're in there with Copperworks out of Seattle with Santa Fe Spirits, Triple Eight Distillery uh, over on in New England in uh, Massachusetts, uh, Virginia Distillery Company, who I just talked to as well, and uh, and Westward. So I mean, there's a lot of heavy hitters in there, and I'm really excited about this expression. How did it come about? Like when you were contacted about it, how what was the pitch? Uh, what made you decide to go for it? And and talk a little bit about the project. So we've known Adam for a long time, even back when he was, you know, and on the journalist side, whiskey writing. Um, and when he decided to get out of that, he had talked about independent bottling. And a lot of people who, especially American whiskey drinkers, who scotch is really kind of the backbone of their love. I've heard a ton of people express the frustration that we don't have that kind of tradition here. That, um, And uh, so, yeah, he... He came by. Him and Nora came through on a road trip. They've been they've been by multiple times when they're close to Texas. They'll come by, um, and they were talking about getting some single barrel stuff, uh, which is you know it's, it seems like the obvious first thing you do if you're going to do independent bottling is go around and find some producers and start buying some barrels. Um, but yeah, he said, hey, next time we're at a conference, we're all together anyway. 
what do you guys think about doing a blend? And at first I was actually thinking he just wanted, they wanted to buy the barrels and do a blend together. Um, he said, no, 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 I want to get everyone together and do it. Like, live, collaboratively. It's like, um, so we were all going to be in Denver for a conference and um, we all brought samples or I think we sent them ahead of time. So he had them. They, they set us up great. We all had our tables. We had notes. We had space and time. And we were all there together and uh, everything was uh, unlabeled. So we we had little piles. This is from a distillery. This is from a distillery. This is from a distillery. You don't know who's who. Some piles, somebody had brought three samples. Some people had bought five, whatever. There was peated stuff. There was unpeated stuff. There was smoked stuff. There was unsmoked stuff. There was first fill. There was refill. Pretty much anything you could imagine. And he, when he, so when he started, he said, you know, there's, here's these piles. There's, here's the distilleries involved. The only rule is you have to l- at least use something from everybody, um, which, of course, would have been a little bit rude if you had uh, <laughs> come all the way out there and then a blend gets picked and you're, you just go home and take your samples with you. Um, but uh, it was really fun. It, we learned a lot. And I think even I think he wants to try things a little bit differently the next time we do it. But yeah, he, I, he, he really wants to make this kind of an annual regular thing that this um, regardless of who which distilleries are involved to kind of have this be an ongoing project where um, all this liquids being brought together, all this experience and preference and sensibilities. And it all makes something that, you know, nobody would make by themselves. It's kind of um, and kind of, I think, chronicle, I think this thing that's been happening and uh, what it is collectively as opposed to just what we're all doing individually. But man, I'd never blended with that many people before. Even blending with two or three people is a pain in the ass sometimes. Um, and, and, and even when we do it in house, we still know, we still know who's the, who's the chef, you know, and it was nothing but chefs. And, uh, but it's so fun to even watch other people talk about the same sample and the same, and how they think, oh, man, I bet if I did this with this and what they're anticipating they're going to do together. I'm like, man, I was going to use that one, but I was expecting it's going to enhance this other one in a very different way or it's going to downplay something. And, um, yeah, it was a really, really cool experience. That's a once-in-a-lifetime. That's a pretty uh, uncommon thing to get to be a part of that. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, and have you tasted the finished product yet? Yeah. I've got my little sample right here. Oh, nice. I haven't, I haven't seen a final bottle, but I do have the, the finished blend in front of me and uh yeah it's gonna be interesting to see i feel like people are talking about uh american blended stuff and all that and wondering and everyone's trying to figure out if that's gonna take off if that's actually gonna turn into a real thing but um yeah i hope so i mean it's pretty exciting you're hearing more people kind of ask about it so yeah i mean i think it makes sense yeah why not right i mean the idea that combining whiskeys of different standards of identity and different class types might make something really delicious like that's not a bizarre that's not a hard thing to understand uh outside of, outside of how do you market it that's the only that's the only thing that sounds daunting about that task which is americans know what single malt is they like bourbon they like rye and now what is this yeah this is just whiskey what what, what is it you know yeah but um but even like legion and stuff like that i think when you see uh, when you see bigger players invest the money and time in a big release like that, it tells you tells you something. They, I'm pretty sure they're watching trends with much more resources and more people than I am. And uh, if they think that's a good idea to do it, it probably they're probably onto something. 
So um, tell me a little bit about the because this is this is a cool organization and I'd love to see this kind of thing happen in, in other areas. A little bit about the Texas Whiskey Association and the trail. Yeah. Uh, another conversation that was a long time in the works and uh, really the history and the 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 issues related to us forming the Texas Whiskey Association uh, are very similar to the dynamics that were going on with the uh, Single Malt Commission. So we started having conversations about the association and trail probably as early as like 2012, maybe. Um, And once again, everybody was small. Everyone was growing. You were just holding on for your life. The brakes were out, and the, the the car was hurtling down the highway at you know 200 miles an hour. Um, so it took a while before I think we could we could sit back and be proactive about getting some things done. Um, it is a new thing, you know, it didn't exist. And there's other trade associations that deal with craft distilling and other things in Texas. Um, and by nature of their inclusivity, they have interests that sometimes align with ours but aren't specific to the whiskey community and whiskey makers um and it just kind of became clear that we needed uh, an organization that could 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 carry those flags as well um stuff that is not common to just rum distiller vodka maker you know uh independent bottlers blenders that kind of stuff it's like no if, if you make whiskey here we've got issues that are unique to us and and we need to be able to, to voice those and mobilize mobilize consumers as well every once in a while and like get, get their voices heard and uh, we haven't done any lobbying or anything like that yet but um, it seemed really needed uh, Texas is massive there's a lot of people here a lot of whiskey drinking here there's a lot of money to be made here uh, there are uh, people who I think are taking advantage of that a little bit unknowingly not realizing that that's kind of hurtful or offensive to anybody and then there's absolute 100% bad actors who are selling you know not even whiskey made in America and throwing Texas flags all over it and making a killing mm-hmm. um, it's a big market and it's a big market of people that are really proud of where they're from and will will get in line to buy stuff that's got a flag on it or some spurs or a cowboy hat on, or a belt buckle on it or whatever yeah. <laughs> um, so I think protecting um, pre- protecting what that means. Um, I'm not really. I'm not into the the business protectionist side of things. Like sink, swim, give people something they will actually want to spend money on, and you'll 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 be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, the feds and state both. There's laws on the books. There's labeling rules. Everybody in this industry knows, like, there's not an arm of the TTB, or in our case, the TABC, who's coming to verify at your place that your claim that this is two years old, 51% corn, all new oak. No one's going to come and find out if that's what's actually what you put in the bottle, right? It's a little bit of an honor system. And, um, yeah, there's some loopholes and there's some stuff that's just not enforced that we felt like, no, I think it really matters. We spend a lot of time talking to consumers even. Um... I think when you tell somebody that this is, uh, you know, made in Texas, this, of course they have an idea of what they think that means and uh, are often very upset that they've spent their money on something that was distilled in Indiana when they find out how, you know, how it all really works. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so in some, 
you can look at it a bunch of different ways, but it's not just to me just protecting producers. It's protecting consumers. It's protecting a, a Texan identity as well. It, it needs to mean something, or eventually it won't. Um, and just like the, with the commission, mm-hmm. yeah. watching what happened with Barrel Age Gin, when everyone started doing it and you didn't get any kind of protection for it, and it wasn't really supposed to happen and it wasn't on the books, eventually someone's going to write a rule for it and it wasn't you, and now you're stuck with something that the producers and the consumers don't really like. And uh, the Western guys are very, very correct to, to bring up Japanese as a, as a similar dynamic. Mm-hmm. We're not a bunch of people running around going, hey, man, we need more laws to like, protect our businesses against some big bads from out of state. It's not really that. I don't want distillers to get stuck with having to alter how they make what they make, whether it's American single malt or whether it's Texas whiskey. I don't want consumers who appreciate those things and think they matter and think they mean something. I don't want anything to, to erode that where eventually it did and now it doesn't. And now sure. it's worthless because we didn't take some steps to make sure. And, and it does matter to people, not just us. I mean, obviously, it's our livelihood. It, these are things that matter to people. Um, they deserve to be taken care of. And if there's ways with rules the way they are for people to get around that and uh, give them something less than, uh, I think that's uh, unfortunate for everybody involved. So, yeah. The, the trail side of it is really kind of the engagement arm and also hopefully someday the financial arm of propping all that up. As for now, like the distilleries, we're footing the bill for all the association activities and all the trail activities um, and happy to do so. But, man, the, the amount of cool, fun things we've gotten to do, there's, we, you know, there's been a lot of single barrel picks. We, we Before all this craziness, we, we have big events here at the distillery probably about once a quarter and having all, these, all, the, all the trail members come up. We did a blending class and we actually went ahead and bottled and blended uh, a collaborative like three or four hour uh, single malt blending where we had about 12 or 15 barrels available, split people up in groups. You know, mock something up, go back, critique it. Everyone's saying, you know, and at the end of the day, they were like, oh, this is not exactly how I thought this was going to go down. Uh, This is a lot harder than I thought. It's like, yeah, I didn't. I knew what this was going to be like. I knew you're going to people are going to be frustrated. Some people are going to like a a blend that didn't end up being the one that won. Or maybe all of you wish we had twice as much time because everybody feels like it's not quite right we could do better and like yeah that's how this works yeah Uh, but anyway we've gotten to do a lot of really cool collaborative stuff um and really engage uh kind of mobilize a lot of the texas uh whiskey community that combined with how the just absolute proliferation of local clubs and a lot of the facebook uh, whiskey clubs and stuff it's a it's a pretty fun time in, in Texas right now. Well, I mean, it is just nuts. And that's the thing I I love about it is that it's a true sense of community, and that is difficult on any scale. But to have it statewide, a and b, a state the size of Texas, is awesome. And um, yeah, and it, it's it's good people. I know a lot of them. Uh, I used to I used to live in Texas. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the great thing about that is I think, you know, we we're talking about protection and consumer protection for a lot of things. I mean, because it's, it's a relevant topic. It's a relevant concern. Uh, but if you can take that a step further and actually make people want to get behind it, as opposed to kind of forcing it on them, man, it's going to, it's going to make that much more of a difference. It's going to make it that much more important and relevant. And, and frankly, uh, it's going to lend the cause 
more clout and, and, and relevance and legitimacy. So I loved, I love seeing what's happening in Texas. Um, not just in single malt, but, but in whiskey in, in general. And, um, I'm looking for it. I'm really excited to see where it goes too. I, I don't, I don't think we've seen the heyday of it yet. So it's, it's an exciting place to be. Yeah. I mean, both, both those communities are 10 years old, you know? So how could we possibly, I mean, yeah, we've, I think we've only just begun, you know? Um, and Texas really, you know, when you're in Europe or if you're in new England, this is, this is like eight countries, you know? Yeah. Depending on who you talk to and where the lines get drawn, you know, I've seen maps with as many as eight to 12 different distinct bioregions in, in, in Texas. So, uh, so we really do just geographically. And we're talking about whiskey specifically, the possibility for between humidity, elevation, temperature swings, um, variations even in microflora for people who do open fermentation i mean we haven't even scratched the surface of uh, what all the different areas in texas can do and what they can bring to the table well, i mean just soil types alone yeah. i mean you talk about you talk about you know i was it's unavoidable man i hate using the word but terroir you know i mean it it, it really comes back down to if you want to break it down to its most fundamental component the soil what you grow in the grain in. And this is, this is an analogy I use all the time because I, you know, I took the same, um, barley seed and in a moderate temperate climate grew it in three different subregions, all within the same Valley. And there were differences in, in grain quality. You take that out and roll it out on a state, the size of Texas, man, there's huge potential for diversity there. I mean, you could argue almost endless potential there. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be forever before, I, that's one of my favorite things, actually, about doing what we do. I always joke with the guys that um, I can't imagine a world in which I even get through all the questions and kind of roots of experimentation that we've got planned, you know, because you do it and then it takes you. I mean, the feedback loop is, is years, right? <laughs> yeah. So to do them and keep going and keep going. And maybe if you're lucky, you check a box and like we we went all the way down that road. We found the answer we were looking for. We're done. Um well, cool. There's a whole back burner. There's notebooks full of stuff of like, okay, then the, I know what the next thing is. And the irony, of course, is we'll do this and we'll spend another 20, 30 years doing it. And I'll decide <laughs> I'm too old to keep going. And then as soon as I'm out of here, they'll be like, whew, we always hated the old man's single malt. We're changing it up, which, of course, <laughs> if that's what happens, that's exactly what they should do because the person making it should have their fingerprint all over it. But oh, sure. I mean, it's um, almost like a choose-your-own-adventure book that doesn't have an end, you know, because you ask a question, you go down the road, and then inevitably, regardless of which way the answer goes, it's going to just raise more questions. And, you know, the cycle continues. Absolutely. And there's an intuitive nature to doing something long enough, just like with blending. Um there's some things that you're just like, I know at first glance, it seemed like if you combine that barrel with that barrel, this is what you're going to get. But like, that's not what's going to happen because um, there's it's just not linear, you know, and it kind of takes knowing, having a relationship, even with the, the base spirit that you're working with to kind of be able to No, I've tried this stuff like that before. And like, that's not what actually does. But I do feel like we get better as we get older and more experienced. We waste less time. So of all these like random things you could just be like what if this what if this what if this a lot of those are bad ideas um <laughs> just just because has someone hasn't done it isn't a good reason to do yeah. it it needs to have some reason that like oh no i think if we do that there's you know some scientific base some there's got to be some reason where you're 
you know, you're going to go spend all this, all that time and lay down whiskey that costs money and put it in barrels that cost money. Uh, you, you really hope for all those things to work out. Even if they don't work out the way you planned, they need to work out on some level. Right. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. You add the process things, just thinking about how scotch has been done forever and how bourbon has been done forever. And the list of things, where you go, why has no one done this? Why has no one done this? Why don't people do it like this? Over the years, sometimes you've gotten answers, you know, from like living legends. And they go, oh, yeah, there's a reason why you don't do that. But we're left with a whole bunch of stuff where like there wasn't an answer for why that's never been done. That's just not how they've done it. And so I don't know if I'd be as excited if I was in the middle of a 200-year-old tradition. But to be a part of two different 10 year old traditions if you even call a 10 year old thing a tradition Uh, beginning of a tradition we hope the beginning of some stuff the chances that I'm ever gonna that I'm gonna live long enough to get bored with this (laughs) and with all the possibilities is pretty much zero there's no way there's no way we'll exhaust everything that needs to be looked into Um, and I think uh, climate maturation climate is more where we've decided to really run with getting to know where we are since it isn't a barley growing area per Mm -hmm. se we didn't really look into that now it's a possibility and it's cool and we're having a really good time looking into what that might mean Um, but we did know for a fact that climate like this just uh, has not made whiskey before Mm -hmm. and it really helps the conversation to have uh, you know Indian and Taiwanese brands knocking the cover off the ball for the last you know five six years and their story is not that dissimilar, you know, and it's, yeah, this is, this, this isn't, you know, hovering between 20 degree, 40 degrees and 60 degrees with a, a little fog rolling in off the, the bay. Oh yeah. Like, yeah, we're doing, we're not doing single malt. It's not, it's not aging in an area like that. Or even the Seattle guys, like it's a lot more similar to where we're used to climate. a lot more similar to places that traditionally have given the world single malt. Um, but now there's just this huge variety and it's not going to be for everybody. And some of it maybe doesn't turn out to be good, but things are happening with single malt specifically that just, it wasn't possible to make that whiskey until single malt started getting made in places where it hadn't mm-hmm. before. Um, and I think it's pretty exciting. It's a pretty exciting time to be a single malt fan. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people's perspectives and opinions are being changed kind of on a daily basis. You know, when, when Amroot first um, started being a thing, I think a lot of people took it for granted until they tried it and then and then had an oh shit moment and then you know Kavalon getting best whiskey I, same thing you know and it's just like wait a second we're kind of behind the game here a little bit we got some yeah. catching up to do yeah I think even the appeal of younger whiskey too uh, I think Kilcoman for me was uh, a distillery that you know they were selling the one year old stuff and then the two year old stuff and like going out of their way to give us glimpses and probably because they probably needed the capital back. Oh, sure. You're you're funding a distillery, but instead of waiting till it could technically be considered whiskey, uh, in Scotland at three years. Um, and I saw the ripple effects of that. I was in New York one time and just to watch, especially Pete, Pete whiskey young is can be really cool. And you're not looking for it to just be completely well-rounded and grown up, Mm -hmm. but you realize, Oh, some of that smoke and some of that interest stuff, some of that really punchy stuff fades with time. And watching other people go, wait, those those one and two and three year old really young whiskeys were pretty good. Yeah. And uh, I was at the, where was I? I can't remember where I was, but I was having a conversation with someone about that. And then we found like a 
like a four-year-old Kaila cast strength that was on the menu and got it. And same thing. It was just like every once in a while, someone's going to, uh, you know, it may have even been accidentally. It may have just been like, no, we're broke. We got to sell something. No one wants to buy stuff that's not even legally whiskey. It's like, well, we got to sell it. I mean, <laughs> what, what, whatever precipitated that thing, and it changed the landscape because something was possible and beautiful, and we just didn't know because that's not usually how it gets done. Mm-hmm. And somebody maybe intentionally or unintentionally broke the rule that you're not supposed to do that. And now then our eyes, you know, the scales came off. And the veil went up, and we go, I need young Isla, please. And now other people are like, cool, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. That's, uh, I think that's that's going to be my – that's how I expe- expect the next – that's how the last 10 years have been. There's flavors and things that are possible that just weren't a part of the conversation um, that are going to be. And it's really going to be fun to see what happens. So uh, – and I will go ahead and in full honesty ask this question for selfish reasons. Your distribution footprint. And um, first of all, what's it look like? What products are you distributing where? And the selfish question is, when can I start getting some single malt in Montana? <laughs> right. I am uh, the worst person to ask. Usually someone goes with these kinds of things. I'm like, where are we again? Who's got-? <laughs> um, so we actually did partner up with Davos Brands, which a lot of whiskey folks don't necessarily know who they are. They own a bunch of their own spirit brands, but there are, they, we partnered with them to handle distribution for us in all the States we weren't in yet. So we would, we've been in about 24 to 26 and their goal is to help get us into the rest of 48 by the end of the year. Um, of course that was before the uh, end of the world happened. Yeah. But, yeah. Seriously. Uh, I don't know if we're on track for that, but that was the goal. Uh, and they've got a they've got a great distribution network. They're best known for whiskey guys who don't know the rest of their portfolio. Uh, Aviation Gin, which is Ryan Reynolds' sure. yeah. uh, brand. That's that's one of their brands. Okay. So if you're listening no, right I, now, I haven't I haven't met him. We don't hang out or anything. But, uh, <laughs> so if you're listening right now, uh, I think the key takeaway is go into your favorite liquor store and ask for them to look into bringing Balconis in and putting it on the shelf. Yeah, all the core. So yeah, Baby Blue, the Pot Still Bourbon, uh, Single Malt, our Rye, 100 Proof Rye, all of that stuff should be in every state, hopefully by the end of the year. Um, so yeah, you bug them, they can yeah, get it. But we got to bug them because otherwise they won't know that they need to bring it in. So very important. I should have sent you a box. I should have sent you a little care package before we did this. We should have planned this out a few weeks more out so you could have had some stuff in your hand. <laughs> Tell you what, let's let's do a follow-up. Let's okay, follow can do that. Um, yeah. What do you have on the horizon here in the next, I don't know if you can even look, 12 to 18 months down the road, but what do you have coming up that you're really excited about? Yeah, we, um, like I said earlier, we use Golden Promise, which is, you know, it's kind of gone the same way of Maris Otter. These are things that are kind of treated as kind of novelties that used to be base, you know, core core grains used in, in distilling and brewing across the world, um, especially in Scotland and the UK. Um when we wanted to start playing around with peated, we talked to the Simpsons family who owns, you know, the golden promises proprietary to their family. And, uh, they're like, yeah, we don't do, we don't do golden promise peated. And then started naming the other, the other varietals that they use for peating. And it was like, well, we've been using this grain for a long time and we want to get into peat, but we don't really want any other dynamics to change. I won't know. I can't, won't be able to isolate that the difference is just the peat. Right. 
and they said, well, yeah, we could we could do custom for you. Uh, you have to buy the whole malting floor, which is like, okay, that's fine. Let us know how much that is. We'll buy that much, and that's how much we'll make. Um, and then we, yeah, we found out they hadn't that hadn't been done in a long time, and so. As, as far as I know, unless they're lying to me and selling some off to the side, um, <laughs> all these really rad, even like, you know, Kurosawa bottlings and stuff from uh, late 90s that were done with Peter Golden Promise that don't exist anymore. Um, I found a few bottlings at auction that are, you know, like three or four grand. I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to buy those. But um, so yeah, as far as I know, we're the only people laying down Peter Golden Promise like on the on the globe. Um and uh, that's really exciting. It's turning out super good. And also doing custom, we were able to do 35, 65, and 99. So we have like mul- tons of different peat levels laid down, and we've 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 cat we've we've barreled them almost right down the line, 50, 50, and new and used oak. Just trying to get as much information as possible. Um, we've done two releases of the new oak ones, um, pretty tiny, um, but we're really excited about that. We've got some refill that we've uh, been throwing into some dessert wine barrels. It's Man, really light peated, light color, like very little wood influence peated thrown into some 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 fruity dessert wine barrels is going to be pretty dope. We're pretty excited about that. Um, the other big question for us is, has always been how to play best with the climate. Um, it's very easy to end up with something really dark and over-oaked. That's, if you're looking for just extraction, this is a great state for that. Um it's hard to achieve balance if you're doing that. So one of our biggest areas of exploration going forward is um, to figure out, is it would it be possible or even desirable to have a 10 or 12-year-old you know, whiskey from here? And if so, what, what, what would you have to do? And I'm not talking about climate control and all that stuff because I, I do firmly believe if you, need, if you want a climate control, then you don't really need to be making whiskey where you're making it. Like you're... You're pretending you're you're faking your barrels out that they're aging somewhere else, um, but with entry proof barrel size, uh, getting real specific on toast profiles and stuff like that, I think we're starting to make a little bit of headway into um, yeah, just figuring out how 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 we could make something that has a normal a more normal and more traditional aging uh, time frame and still not end up a really unbalanced over oaked product like is really that's probably one of the biggest challenges with texas is, seemed like a really great thing early on you're gonna get color and wood flavor super fast like oh it's aging really quick here it's like well partially um but then if you uh you grow up and now you're a 10 year old company and stuff starts getting five six seven years old and you're like wow these i mean a lot of this stuff is just almost undrinkable wood bombs um we gotta try we gotta do something different so we're gonna be playing around with a lot of large format barrels we're going to try and go right up against the full size, both with the commission and, uh, you know, UK rules being the 700 liter, mm-hmm. trying to find if we think we've got a lead on somebody who's willing to make new oak for us at that size so that we can do bourbons and rise as well as single malt um, with that with that approach. But, you know, it's, it's just it's all questions, man. It's all questions that uh, without answers, it's all it's all on the horizon. It's all on deck. So cool, man. Exciting stuff in the works. I love it. I love it. So I'm looking forward to the Lost Lantern. Uh, release. I think Adam's going to send me a sample of that so we could talk a little bit about that. I want to get back together with you later. Uh, I've been thinking about this more since since we're talking about it. Um, yeah, send me some bottles, send me some samples, and I'd love to just sit down and have an episode that's nothing but walking through a tasting panel of of uh, your single malt. 
Is that something we could do? Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. Yeah, that'd cool. be awesome. Yeah, I obviously if when uh, when we do things like this or for live video like Instagram or YouTube or something, it's a little bit easier. People are sitting there watching you drink and they can drink along and stuff. But since I knew this was for audio, I didn't even think like I'm in. <laughs> I also didn't realize how hard it was for you to get. I didn't realize you're not sitting on a, a cushy little stash. So I, I, would, I would have made that happen. We'll fix that. Well, and you know what? It, it may well also just be that I need to be more vocal going into the going into the liquor store and telling them, hey, go get the stuff. Oh, I thought you were going to say you need to be more vocal when you reach out to people to be on the podcast. You just need to like just make your ask known. Just go ahead and say it. I need you to send me a box of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I don't have too many problems being vocal. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jared Hempstead, thank you so much uh, for, for joining me today. I'm going to go ahead and... and put show notes up for the episode links to the distillery uh to everything we've been talking about here anything else uh anywhere else people can find you online if they've got questions they want to find out more about what you've got going on yeah yeah uh i mean i'm not on, i'm not super active on social stuff but yeah i'm on i'm on facebook and instagram both hit me up or you know send something through the distillery uh they do a pretty good job of getting the nerdy if it's just like, where can I get it? You know, obviously somebody ends up handling that. But the good nerdy questions, they usually make their way to the blending team or the distilling team and get to have a lot of fun interacting with uh, people that really, really care, you know, which is uh, one of the nicest part about it is getting to interact with people that are on the other side of it. It just the only difference is you just happen to not be a producer, <laughs> but everything else about how we relate to whiskey and what we care about it is, is you know, it's one community. That's really fun. Awesome. Yeah. Jared, thanks again, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. No problem. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. For more information or to get more insight into anything you heard on this episode, just head over to asmwpodcast.com and click on episode 18 to check out the show notes and links. And while you're there, if you have any additional questions or want to leave some feedback, just click on contact and let her rip. Thanks again to Mr. Jared Hempstead for offering up his insights into whiskey and giving us a glimpse at some really cool things to come from Balcones. Stay tuned for more from him, too. I guarantee that's not the last you've heard of either him or Balcones on the podcast. Thanks again, as always, to Mr. Michael Kirkpatrick for our theme music. You can catch up with him and listen to some more of his stuff at michaelkirkpatrickmusic.com. Guys, thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already, hit subscribe to stay up on the latest in American Single Malt. And if you'd be so kind as to leave a five-star rating, that would help out immensely in getting the podcast more visibility and to help bring even more whiskey enthusiasts into the world of American Single Malt. Coming up for episode 19, I'm headed east to Iowa to chat with Mr. Murphy Quint of Cedar Ridge Winery and Distillery in Swisher, Iowa. Until next time. <laughs>